This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The pro-life victory over Roe versus Wade does not end the abortion battle. Friday, June 24th, 2022 can be seen as one of the great days of American history. That day, the Supreme Court announced that it was reversing the disastrous Roe versus Wade decision. Even before the announcement, the left-wing misinformation machine cranked into high gear. Such a strategy is ultimately counterproductive because people will eventually discover that they have been deceived. However, the left has lied for so long about so many things that they have lost the ability to distinguish between true and false. They follow the Marxist doctrine that any act is moral if it promotes the revolution. As Mr. John Horvat points out in his essay, Five crucial lessons from the uproar over Roe versus Wade. Those promoting traditional morality must not adopt such tactics. Roe versus Wade is dead. The decision to overturn it represents more than the end of a bad law. It changes the moral debate in America today. The uproar over the leaked opinion that preceded the ruling, and now its dramatic aftermath, contains five crucial lessons that must orient the post-Roe future. The lesson started with the leaked opinion. The likely intention of whoever leaked it was to prepare the ground for a furious reaction. The normal release of an unknown decision in June would have limited the pro-abortion movement's ability to mobilize. The leaked contents with the good news of Roe's repeal added urgency and passion to the left's cause. The left needed the extra weeks to whip up the hysteria. While energizing the pro-abortion bases, the hysteria revealed the true and horrific face of the movement. The debate is no longer a carefully scripted campaign controlled by Planned Parenthood operatives in the name of women's health. The hysteria of the radicals hides nothing. It allows people to see what unites and defines the pro-abortion movement. It now becomes much easier to perceive that procured abortion generated two currents, two mentalities, and yes, two Americas. Five lessons can be learned from the Roe vs. Wade hysteria. 1. Abortion is a debate about the wrong concept of freedom. The first lesson is that the fiction of women's health is no longer the most important pro-abortion talking point. The hysterical ones have spoken and presented the issue as the freedom to do whatever one wants, regardless of the consequence or human obstacles, even if it means killing babies. The pro-abortion radicals accept no restrictions— they deny biological and metaphysical reality. 2. Abortion unites all forms of impurity and all disordered passions. Protesters from the whole gamut of the sexual revolution's hot-button issues joined the hysteria around the leaked opinion. They cannot be separated. Once one gratifies the disordered sexual passions, any relationship is possible and demanded. Thus, abortion advocates connect abortion and the LGBTQ plus agenda, as seen by the fact that its flag appeared at protests. They correctly conclude that banning procured abortion threatens all moral aberrations. Indeed, 
the more Justice Alito insisted that there is no link between these issues in his leaked opinion, the more the left made the connection. 3. Abortion Unites the Political Left Sadly, the abortion struggle unites the left more than the right. Leftists allow no compromise on this issue. The Democratic Party would have everything to gain by moderating its abortion stance. However, now that it embraces totalitarianism, it no longer allows for dissent. Socialists, communists, and anarchists all share the same passion for abortion, knowing that it supports their egalitarian goals. Their flags, symbols, and slogans were part of the post-leak protests. Number four. The abortion radicals follow or break the law when it favors them. The pro-abortion movement used Roe v. Wade as a bludgeon of, quote, settled law, unquote, against the pro-life cause. However, now that Roe is dead, expect to see in place the Marxist Marxism that legality means whatever favors the advance of the revolution. Activists now chanted, We will not obey. Indeed, political officials and public prosecutors already threaten not to enforce the law in places where abortion will become illegal. The post-leak hysteria provoked many to break the law by protesting and threatening the Supreme Court justices at their homes. They have vandalized pregnancy centers and churches. The decision to overturn Roe may well give rise to a, quote, summer of rage, unquote, in which protesters riot, burn, kill, maim, and destroy. Aiding and abetting leftists in government and media will give their blessing to the violence by repeating the mostly peaceful 2020 mantra. 5. The abortion issue increasingly represents those who are anti-God and pro-Satan. The most shocking revelation of the post-leak hysteria was the openly anti-God and pro-Satan wrath. Indeed, satanic symbols, blasphemous signs, and hateful slogans found their way into the protests. Others called for attacking and vandalizing Catholic churches on Mother's Day. Satanic groups renewed their claim that abortion has a sacramental character for them. Tabernacles were stolen. The Blessed Sacrament profaned. Catholic politicians supporting abortion defied church authorities with sacrilegious communions. All these things took place without official protest or regret from those within the abortion movement. Thus, the post-leak hysteria and coming storm reveal much about the abortion movement. Roe v. Wade is not just about abortion. It is tied to a world of issues and a worldview. The left sees this clearly, the right not as much. The protest gave the nation a glimpse of where the left and the abortion movement want to go. The right must see the worldview divide in full clarity and rally to the faith and Christian civilization. 
it must adopt an opposite program that unifies all that is according to God's law. Here are five ways the right should fight back. They are the road to victory. 1. The pro-life movement must unite around the true vision of freedom. Thus, freedom is a rule of self-control that allows a person to live free of the tyranny of the passions and facilitates a life full of truth and beauty. It is ordered liberty, not unbridled license. 2. The pro-life movement must embrace all that is pure and moral. It must unify all those who believe in the natural moral law. The left has proclaimed there is no such thing as single-issue politics, since all these issues are interconnected. The pro-life movement must see the clash the same way and rise to this challenge, and above all, resist the LGBTQ offensive that undermines everything it stands for. 3. The anti-abortion fight must serve as a platform for uniting the political right. Once the left has defined itself as overwhelmingly pro-abortion, the right must be consistent and unite around this winning issue. It must continue the political battle by passing laws that make abortion unthinkable. The goal must be total victory. 4. The movement must adhere to the law. Just because the left breaks the law and creates chaos does not mean that pro-lifers can act outside the law. The left knows how to exploit any breach of the law by those on the right to its advantage. What wisdom is there in playing into the hands of the left? Pro-life activists who break the law betray the movement. Pro-lifers must keep the fight legal and peaceful. Both pro-life and pro-abortion activists who violate the law must be denounced. 5. The fight for life must always be religious, in favor of God, the source of all grace and life. The left knows that God is at the center of the debate. It knows that the church represents the moral law and makes it the target of its action. Its radicals invoke Satan for help. How much more the pro-life movement should call upon the overwhelming power of God and the Blessed Mother to secure the final victory. The post-league hysteria has served to change the nature of the abortion debate. Procured abortion is no longer a health, woman's, political, or secular issue. Procured abortion is the moral issue it has always been the killing of innocent human life. The left is redefining the abortion fight in universal moral, religious, ethical, and metaphysical terms. This new framing of the debate gives those defending life the advantage. The pro-life side must rise to the occasion and press the attack. The Supreme Court's decision moves the abortion battle from the federal courts to the state legislatures. Each state needs to decide what its next step will be. 
Some states recently passed so-called trigger laws that went into effect when the court announced its decision. In other states, the lawyers and legislatures are dusting off laws that have been irrelevant for almost 50 years. Mr. Edwin Benson's essay, Getting Rid of Roe is Only Half the Battle, Michigan is on the Front Lines, looked at the state of Michigan to provide an example of this complicated process. The press is full of dire predictions for the whole human race as the U.S. Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade. Indeed, the bad days of Roe will soon be behind us. Contrary to those who predict legal chaos, the post-Roe situation is relatively simple. Before Roe, each state had its own set of laws regulating abortions. Since the Supreme Court reversed the catastrophic 1973 decision, those laws will once again become effective unless the state legislature has changed them. Thus, pro-lifers must review their state's laws, especially if they have governors or attorneys general that favor the opposition. Those who call themselves pro-choice will try to impose their fatal opinions upon their states, no matter what the law says. They cannot be allowed to get away with it. The state of Michigan offers a fine example of the possibilities and conflicts ahead. On May 9, 2022, The Hill ran an article with a highly descriptive title, quote, Whitmer, I'm not going to wait for Congress to act on abortion, unquote. It quoted an op-ed that the Michigan governor contributed to the New York Times. The issue was procured abortion. Her words extend far beyond her legal powers. Quote, I am not going to sit on my hands waiting for Congress to do something, the governor wrote. Whether through legislation, executive action, ballot initiative, or civic engagement, the answer to the overtly political ruling of a supposedly apolitical, unelected body is to engage in every way and at every level, unquote. Without seeing the irony in her words, she added, if we do not use every level of power we have right now, or if we succumb to complacency, Americans will suffer and may die, unquote. Furthermore, she has called on the Michigan Supreme Court to step in. Her words echo many liberal governors who promise quick and decisive action. However, the Michigan legislature and Michigan citizens have already spoken out clearly about this evil practice. In terms of the Michigan abortion law, November 7, 1972 is the critical date. It was election day. Most national media focused on the presidential race between President Richard Nixon and Senator George McGovern. The president was re-elected in a landslide, getting 60.7% of the vote against Senator McGovern's 37.5%. President Nixon's victory was so convincing that NBC called the election before 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, four hours before the polls closed in some Western states. In Michigan, abortion was also on that ballot in the form of Proposal B. Abortion was already illegal in most cases, 
A threat to the mother's life was the only exception since 1846. In 1931, the legislature rewrote the law to make it more straightforward and further simplified it in 1948. Quote, Any person who shall willfully administer to any pregnant woman any medicine, drug, substance, or thing whatever, or shall employ any instrument or other means whatever, with intent thereby to procure the miscarriage of any such woman, unless the same shall have been necessary to preserve the life of such woman, shall be guilty of a felony. And in case the death of such pregnant woman be thereby produced, the offense shall be deemed manslaughter. Unquote. However, by 1972, there was considerable ferment to quote-unquote reform the nation's abortion laws. The sexual revolution had begun, and the new term feminists described those who wanted women to have greater quote-unquote opportunities before the law and in the workforce. To them, children represented a roadblock that would hinder women's exercising their so-called liberation. The nation's two largest states had already taken steps to make procured abortions legal. California in 1969 and New York in 1970. So Michigan supporters of so-called abortion rights formed the Michigan Abortion Referendum Committee. That committee led a petition effort that collected 229,044 verified signatures to put their proposal before the state's voters. Quote, Proposal to allow abortion under certain conditions. The proposed law would allow a licensed medical or osteopathic physician to perform an abortion at the request of the patient if, one, the period of gestation has not exceeded 20 weeks, and two, if the procedure is performed in a licensed hospital or other facility approved by the Department of Public Health. Should this proposed law be approved? Unquote. Many people thought the measure would pass easily. Earlier in the year, the state legislature had overwhelmingly approved the feminist favorite law, the so-called Equal Rights Amendment. Governor William Milliken, a liberal Republican, favored both the ERA and the new abortion proposal. Perhaps more importantly, there was almost no organized resistance. Then, only a few months before the vote, pro-life supporters formed the Voice of the Unborn Coalition. Lacking a large bank account, the coalition focused on printing flyers. Volunteers then placed the flyers on cars in grocery store and mall parking lots during the weekends just before the election. Many people, this author's mother included, received two or three of the handouts. Virtually all of the news media ignored the desperate effort. The election results surprised almost everyone, even many of the volunteers. Slightly over 60% of Michigan's voters opposed abortion. It was not even a case of urban voters supporting liberalization and rural voters opposing it. Michigan's most urban county, Wayne, where Detroit is located, 
overwhelmingly voted no, 513,972 to 346,566. Only one of Michigan's 83 counties supported the change, Washtenaw County, home of the University of Michigan and of Eastern Michigan University. Of course, three months after the pro-life victory in Michigan, the Supreme Court clutched all power in the realm of abortion to itself in the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision. The Roe decision shocked the nation. According to his one-time assistant, Monica Crowley, even President Nixon didn't see it coming. Not only had the Supreme Court rewritten every state's abortion laws, it had also taken an extreme position that allowed virtually no regulation by the states. Nineteen years later, Planned Parenthood v. Casey allowed some state restrictions, but very few. Even today, the United States has abortion laws that are far more liberal than those of even the most left-leaning European nations. The Supreme Court handed the pro-choice faction success beyond their wildest dreams with one stroke. However, most states simply left the old, now unenforceable, laws on the books. So those laws remain on the books ready to resume their proper functioning should Roe be overruled. However, the leftists are already telling their lawyers to get those old laws set aside. Michigan's Governor Whitmer is already challenging the 1931 law. The state Supreme Court didn't set the law aside, but agreed to hear the arguments on an expedited basis. The court could comply with the governor's wishes, finding or devising a right to abortion in the state constitution. It could also decide that the 1931 law and the 1972 referendum are again in force. One thing is clear. Since Roe v. Wade has been overturned, each state will need to decide what its abortion laws will be. Some, like New York and Virginia, have already come down on the pro-abortion side. Others, like Florida and Oklahoma, are protecting innocent life. States like Michigan are in legal limbo and could go either way. It is more important than ever that pro-lifers find out where their states stand on this crucial issue. The Roe v. Wade decision comes at a time when the so-called feminist movement is tearing itself apart. For decades, it appeared that the feminists were winning every battle they fought. Every element of society appeared to be conforming to the demands of a small group that pretended to represent all women. Government, schools, business, and even many in the church tried to remold themselves in the radical feminist image. Now, that movement lies in tatters. Many in the racialist movements like Black Lives Matter resent the power of college-educated white women. The so-called transgenders are making a mockery of women's sports. And, of course, the Supreme Court just took away their cornerstone. Mr. Horvat analyzes this situation in his essay, Why the Pro-Abortion Movement is Leaving Feminists Behind. The left's narrative has long been a feminist tale of oppression. For 50 years... 
the abortion movement has revolved around the myth that it safeguards women's health. For this reason, abortion is expressed in terms of women's bodies, with cries of, my body, my choice. Men need not opine. Suddenly, a strange new crack has appeared in the abortion movement that disputes this narrative. Medical organizations, advocacy groups, and leftist politicians are changing the rhetoric. They no longer use the word woman in the abortion debate. The movement has gone woke and is leaving behind the feminists who now represent yesterday's revolution. New York Times writer Michael Powell quoted a pro-abortion tweet by the American Civil Liberties Union that sounded the alarm about the threat of overturning the Roe decision. The tweet failed to mention that only one demographic category is biologically able to have an abortion. It reads, Abortion bans disproportionately harm black, indigenous, and other people of color the LGBTQ community, immigrants, young people, those working to make ends meet, people with disabilities. Protecting abortion access is an urgent matter of racial and economic justice. Unquote. The message of the tweet is clear. The abortion movement is now so fused with the avant-garde of today's woke revolution that it cannot be separated from all identity groups. Leftist theory is now so mainstream that the affirmation that a person is a woman cannot be tolerated, as everyone must be forced into a bizarre non-binary world. The supposed cause of the abortion fight, oppressed women, is now left out which leads to the suspicion that it was never the cause in the first place. Even Planned Parenthood and NARAL Pro-Choice America, that have long written the script in the abortion debate, are avoiding the W word. They may hold women's marches here and there to impress their grassroots. They will still talk about women's choice, referring to a past talking point. However, Behind the backs of the activists, they are betraying feminists. Pro-abortion literature increasingly employs terms like pregnant people and birthing people to indicate women who are expecting children. It is not about women anymore. The long decades spent developing women's studies departments and feminist literature are over. They are passé and even reactionary. The new struggle revolves around so-called gender-neutral language that reflects the belief that a person's sex is a social construct and is self-determined. To affirm the existence of a man or a woman must be rejected altogether. Indeed, not even Supreme Court Justice-designate Katanji Brown-Jackson would answer the question what is a woman, lest she stray off the woke path? In the case of abortion, there can be no distinctions between women and so-called transgendered men, since both can become birthing persons and have abortions. 
The new abortion activism reflects this sea change without women. Such a development is to be expected. Leftist revolutionaries believe that history is a dialectic process of never-ending class struggles between those who oppress and the oppressed. As the cause advances, those stuck in earlier stages must be thrown under the bus without sentimentality or regret. Yesterday's feminists must be sacrificed on the altar of today's trans-priests of sexual freedom. By affirming an unchangeable identity, the old feminist freedom fighters and female athletes are now the new oppressors. The new revolution has three characteristics that are reflected in this new phase. It hates definition, opposes social restraint, and tends to self-destruction. First, the new revolution seeks to destroy definition, since the mere act of defining restricts the person inside the confines of the definition. This restriction equals oppression. Thus, the binary world limits the person to two categories imposed by human nature. New fluid models break out of the shackles of human nature and declare new genders. The so-called transgendered person is the new revolutionary that self-determines pronouns, identity, and nature. Secondly, the new revolutionaries hate all restraint, which they see embedded in social structures, traditions, and institutions. Today's culture war seeks to destroy all systemic restrictions that are obstacles to this new vision of humanity, whether they be pronouns, bathrooms, or sports. In the present battle phase, all cultural manifestations of the male-female definition must be suppressed. This leads to the final characteristic that points to the future. This hatred of human nature leads to a nihilistic urge to destroy creation and the Creator. For this reason, the new protests contain displays of blasphemy and sacrilege. Catholic churches are vandalized. Pro-abortion rallies are marked with the ominous presence of witchcraft and satanic symbols. Each new step in the revolutionary process brings this revolt closer to self-destruction. The insistence on making abortion gender fluid is causing unease among conservatives. It confirms what they have always suspected. The sexual hot-button issues are fused together. Conservative politicians have used these links to show the true face of their adversaries and their unstated goals. The birthing people label in the abortion fight scares those in the middle who see themselves forced into a revolution for which they have no real sympathy. However, it is the feminists that feel betrayed, since the trans people have stolen their battle flag and used it to their advantage. The newcomers have even turned the banner against the feminist cause. Indeed, the pro-abortion veterans have long framed the debate as a women's health issue. 
Now the public is told a different narrative that contradicts the one long held. The old-style feminists also face angry transgender activists and their allies who call them transphobes and quote-unquote cis-sexist ones because they insist that banning abortion is a war on women. The New York Times article quotes feminist scholar Professor Stephen Green of North Carolina State University who questions the wisdom of changing the message in the middle of the fight. He says that it alienates the movement's feminist base. Quote, Activists are adopting symbols and language that are off-putting, not just to the right, but to people in the center and even liberals, he notes. These things change the nature of the debate that was once so carefully scripted. The hothead trans activists in the movement risk losing sectors of needed support. The new activism shows that the sexual revolution is a process that will not stop until all sexual aberrations are approved, all people become androgynous, and all morals are suppressed. The left no longer hides its goals. This process is directed against God, His law, and the Church. Only a restoration of Christian civilization can guarantee a return to order. This concludes, The pro-life victory in Roe v. Wade does not end the abortion battle. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property, TFP.